in her book entitled The Book of Human Emotions, uh, author Tiffany Smith describes the role that language plays in our emotional lives. Uh, she argues that we need adequate language to describe uh, our emotions and to understand our emotions. Uh, and in one of her interviews, uh, Tiffany Smith said, one of the emotions I became really interested in when researching the book was homesickness. In the mid-late 18th century, this author says, homesickness was counted as a credible source of physical ailment and even considered a possible cause of death. And it's true, a sense of displacement, a sense of loss can have a, a powerful effect uh, on all of us. As one Bible teacher said, the biblical narrative begins and ends at home. From the Garden of Eden uh, to the New Jerusalem, we are hardwired for place and for permanence, for rest and refuge, for presence and protection. We long for home because welcome was our first gift of grace, and it will be our last as well. The lyrics of one of uh, the songs we have learned here in our church, and we will sing later in our service, uh, the song that is entitled, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, the last, or one of the stanzas at, towards the end of the song, uh, say the following, with every breath I long to follow Jesus. And then it tells us why. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know that he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. The aches of homesickness for a lasting place, for lasting peace, is what we are going to look at this morning and I invite you to open God's Word to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. This is the Word of the Lord for us this morning. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord... And he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among, among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. A rather short passage, a short psalm. Would you, ask, would you join me in asking the Lord to speak to our hearts through the preaching of 
this psalm. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for revealing to us your heart and to reveal to us the heart of your people uh, as they have longed after you. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through this psalm in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that our own hearts would be retuned and realigned to cultivate a homesickness uh, for the promise that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. We are in the book of Psalms in this uh, season uh, of the life of our church. The book of Psalms is divided up in five books. And uh, according to some Bible interpreters, the five-fold division of the book of Psalms uh, might mirror or might intentionally have been mirrored to, uh, to reflect the five books of the law. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not. It's an interesting insight. Um, but today as we are jumping into the book of Psalms, we are going straight for the last book, the fifth book. And even as we jump in the last book, this is not Psalm 120 is not the beginning of the, of the fifth book of Psalms. We discover that in the fifth book, there's a mini selection of, of Psalms. We know that it's a mini collection because they all have the same title, a song of ascents. If you look at Psalm 120, the one that we have just read, and you keep looking at all the Psalms starting with 120 all the way to 134, you will notice that every one of these Psalms, 15 Psalms together, all have the same title. And this is an indication that they were a mini collection of Psalms. And you may wonder, what does this mean, a song of ascents? Um, the Bible speaks of this collection, and Bible interpreters debate the exact setting uh, behind these 15 psalms. But what is pretty clear from these psalms is that they were psalms for going up to Jerusalem to worship. Psalm 120 starts with a man who realizes that he's in the wrong place. Uh, then in verse 20, in Psalm 121, he begins the journey and he, he's looking to the hills and asking, where will my help come from as he's setting himself on a journey? In 122, uh, the psalm begins with, I was glad when they said to me, let us go towards the house of the Lord. And in Psalm 122, the feet of, this, of the man arrive in the gates of Jerusalem. And the last few psalms in this collection of psalms of ascents uh, address God's dwelling place where the Ark of the Covenant was. In, in Psalm 133, the psalm praises a unity of the people of God as they are gathered together for worship. And the last song in this collection, 134, addresses the servants of the Lord who stand day and night in his courts. And the psalm closes on an invitation to praise this God, for he is the source of all true blessing. So it's likely that this collection of songs by the same title 
a song of ascents, it's likely this collection of, song, of psalms was actually sung by Jewish pilgrims going to the yearly festivals that God had commanded the Jewish people to celebrate three times a year. It's like Christians today who on, when, when the time of the year comes to celebrate Christmas, we have a set of songs that we love to sing every time that time of the year comes around. And we call those songs carols. A, a set of songs for the season. In a similar way, these songs, which are for us in the Bible, Psalm 120 through 134, are this mini collection of, of songs that were sung by the Jewish people as they went up to Jerusalem on this spiritual journey, as they prepared their hearts to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, to partake of the festivals that would recount the story of God's redemption of his people, even before they get there to worship the Lord in the temple, they would sing these songs to prepare their hearts for worship. So they were on a spiritual journey. In light of this setting, I am entitling this short series of messages, Psalms for the Spiritual Journey. Now, we are not on a journey to, to Jerusalem. Actually, we don't have to go anymore. Even though some Christians love to go to visit the places and to uh, check out all the beautiful places geography and uh, to, to, to walk on the roads that Jesus walked and on the roads that the patriarchs and the apostles and the prophets have walked. It's a, it's a sweet encounter. We as Christians are no longer commanded or demanded to worship the Lord by going yearly to Jerusalem. It would be a slow, expensive journey to have to do that every year, several times a year. But the reason why we don't have to go anymore as an act of worship is because the one about whom all the Jewish festivals were pointing to has already come. And he fulfilled all of them. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the, the three major festivals of the Old Testament, the Passover the Feast of the Tabernacles, and the Feast of the Day of Atonement. So because of Jesus, we are no longer needing to go on a spiritual journey to the physical city of Jerusalem. But if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, you too and I myself are on a spiritual journey. And these psalms can teach us lessons for our spiritual journey today because all the Old Testament was pointing forward uh, to Jesus Christ. And they teach us lessons of what it means to follow the one about whom all the festivals were pointing to. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. I pray that we would continue to love you and get to know you in a way that points you to the God who revealed himself to us throughout the Old Testament in the prophetic writings 
all pointing to the ultimate one, Jesus Christ, his one and only begotten Son. In the passage this morning, the first psalm of this collection of songs of ascents uh, points us and orients our hearts towards being homesick for a lasting peace. You don't have to be a Jew to have this experience. And as a, as a Christian, I hope that you would be pointed to this experience that this psalm reveals for us today. The structure of the psalm is fairly easy to discern. In verse 1, we see the theme of the, of the entire psalm summarized in the words, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. The rest of the psalm unpacks this summary verse. In verse 2, we see the psalmist's words addressed to the Lord as he tells us what exactly he called to the Lord for. In verses 3 and 4, we see the words of the psalmist towards the deceitful tongue. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, we see his words addressed towards himself. In this threefold division, we see the outline for today's message, which highlights the emotion of homesickness for lasting peace. We notice that this psalm begins with the words, in my distress. And the psalm ends with the words, they are for war. And you wonder, where is God's answer? It seems like in this psalm, there's no happy ending in the here and now. And the, and the longing that the psalm points us to is a longing of a very real experience that the distress keeps lingering on for a while. How do we reorient our hearts to become homesick for lasting peace? The psalm will point us in three directions and will teach us three lessons. Call to the Lord. Number one, call to the Lord. Number two, release to the Lord. Release to the Lord. And number three, resolve before the Lord. Resolve before the Lord. Let's look at each of these lessons in the psalm that teaches us to cultivate homesickness for lasting peace. Call out to the Lord. Here's how the psalmist begins. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Now this is where some of us are this morning in distress. Some of you have been calling out to the Lord. But what you have seen and experienced, it looks like the lack of answer. In your mind, it may feel that God has not been answering because the deliverance you have been praying for and expected and hoped for doesn't seem to be near you. 
And quite frankly, when I looked at the psalm for the first time, I didn't see an answer. Especially when the psalm ends the way it does. With a psalmist still being surrounded by people who continue to be for conflict and strife and war. And if you look at the psalm, you're puzzled. How can the, how can the psalmist say, and he answered me, when one, we don't know what the answer is, and second, when it seems like nothing has changed to the external circumstances of this man. And you feel like this is your psalm. In my distress, I called towards the Lord. And I want to say, he answered me, but I don't see the answer. The answer is ambiguous. <clears throat> what is God's answer? Was it a yes? But yes to what? what is it, was it a no? Or a not now? Not yet? Or not in the way you expected? Friends, I, I think the way the psalm develops points us to the answer if we have eyes to see it. It's an ambiguous answer. So I invite you to consider in what way this psalm tells us with some degree of confidence, he answered me. And yet, the answer is ambiguous and puzzling. I want to hang tight a little bit and, and hang on to this word, and he answered me. Because even if we don't see it right away and in a very clear uh, pattern, the God we do serve, the God we put our hope in, is a living God. He's a God who hears the prayers of his people. He's a God who listens to the prayers of those who belong to him. He's a God who is able to act and answer. This is the God of the Bible. This is a God who revealed himself to us in the words of, of the scriptures. And supremely, he revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. He is not the God of our imagination. He's not the God of how we would like him to be. For those of us who are believers, let the words of this psalm refresh in you the confidence and the yearning to call on the Lord because he is a God who answers. Are there burdens in your life that you need to bring before the Lord in a fresh way? In my distress, I called to the Lord. And for some of you this morning, this is all you need to hear. In my distress, 
I need to call to the Lord. For some of us, you may say, Pastor, I've been doing so. But the rest of that sentence doesn't seem to to be my experience. And for some of us, where we need to camp out on and say is that there might have been burdens that you have been bringing to the Lord. And you have become tired of waiting on an answer. And this psalm may need to say to you, continue calling on the Lord. Continue waiting on the Lord. He is a God who answers. The distress that this psalmist went through was, was a very unique type of distress. It was not a general distress. It was a specific, very narrow niche of, of distress. It was not physical suffering, but the distress caused by lying and deceitful tongues of others that were pounding against him. And this is a very unique kind of distress. When others lie about you and speak falsehood against you, when they speak behind your back, and sometimes when they speak even in front of you, in your face, and spreading false accusations, smearing the good reputation, the good name that you have. A Presbyterian pastor by the name of Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of his mother teaching him an important lesson when he was young. Uh, the lesson uh, is summarized by this saying that many of you may have heard as well. Sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And Pastor Ferguson said, I believed my mother for many, many years until it happened to him. Until he, until he came to experience, as a pastor, the pain of others smearing lies against him and against his ministry. And he came to realize how the lesson his mother taught him proved to be inadequate, insufficient, and plainly untrue. That the words others spread against you or the words they throw at you to accuse you falsely can bring up incredible pain. That we can destroy others and we can be destroyed by others simply through what they say about us. When you are on the receiving end of slander, of character assassination, of being accused by falsehood, it is incredibly painful. And the people of God are not protected or sheltered 
from such deceitful accusations. And some members in our own church have been on the receiving side of such words in the recent months and years. I know it because I've watched it and heard it and experienced it alongside with you. In such situations, it's very easy to want to act in self-defensive ways, in wanting to bring justice and bring righteousness right now. But what the psalmist does in this setting is a reminder for us of what we should do as well, to call out to the Lord and ask the Lord to deliver him from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. And as I considered this response from the psalmist, I've wondered, how would the Lord answer such a prayer? What is a psalmist expecting the Lord to do in a way to answer his request and petition? We might think the answer would be that the lies would stop, that those who keep spreading them would would stop and they would no longer spread them. But even if that's the case, the lies that have been spread can never be taken back. So I think the answer the Lord gives in this psalm shows up in some surprising ways, some ambiguous ways, but they show up in the next two stanzas of the psalm. If the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, pointed us to the need to call to the Lord in our distress, the answer the Lord gives shows up in point 2 and point 3 of the psalm. And point 2 is release to the Lord. Release to the Lord. The first clue of the ambiguous answer that the Lord has given the psalmist is the confident answer and reaction the psalmist has that God will bring vengeance on those who harmed him through their deceitful words. Look at verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Do you see the confidence that this psalmist has against the deceitful tongue? He's confident that retribution will come. And it's not his retribution, and it's not his judgment. Notice the two images that the psalmist gives in verse 4. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, to say that the lying tongue will receive a warrior's sharp arrows is a poetic way of saying that the lying tongue will die. But notice how. There's a second image in verse 4. With glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, this image needs some explanation. In in ancient Israel, uh, the broom tree was uh, a special kind of tree known to have the trunk that would create the best material for coals 
that would last the longest when burning. So receiving a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree was a way of saying that God's judgment will find you and will be severe, lasting for a long time. And here's the point of this image. This man is not saying, I will hunt you down. He's not engaging in self-defense or self-retribution or self-justice. He is releasing the liar with his deceitful tongue to the God who will execute his vengeance in his own time. We don't know when, and it's unclear who is this warrior's uh, sparrow, this warrior's sharp arrow. The principle that vengeance belongs to the Lord is taught throughout the Scripture. For example, Romans 12, 17 and 19 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Centuries before the book of Romans was written, the answer that the Lord has given to the author of Psalm 120 is this confidence that the Lord will bring vengeance and retribution against the evil done through the lying and deceitful tongue. So that now this man of Psalm 20 was free and enabled to release the hurt and the damage and the lying tongue to the Lord. Friends, part of God's answer to this man's request and petition in verse 1 is to remind him and to build in him the confidence that God will not overlook the evil of others done against us. As Bible teacher Derek Kidner said, the liar, wounding though his weapons are, will be destroyed with far more potent shafts than lies, God's arrows of truth and calls of judgment. So friends, God's answer, first answer, first part of the ambiguous answer to, to, to this man is the ability of him releasing the hurt and the lie and the liar to God's hand. This is part of God's answer. But this also has a warning for us, for any of us who may be lured into being on the giving side of the slander and the character assassination and the lying and deceitful tongue, if any of us fall in the trap of gossiping, 
slandering others. Oh, friends, this judgment is for us as well. So we too need to guard against, in our hearts, against assuming the worst conclusion about others' character. This is a warning also for any of us who are tempted to give in to lying or speaking untruthfully. God does not overlook lying, and His judgment will be adequate and intense and will find us when we don't even realize it. So we must turn away from any forms of deceit and lying. Other ways in which you are tempted to creatively seek to dance around the truth in ways that the final result ends up being deceit and lying. Friends, don't mess with God's fiery arrows that can find you in His timing in the most unexpected ways. Parents, I'm so encouraged to hear testimonies from you when you get to teach your children of the severity of lying and speaking deceitfully. And we wonder, who taught our children to learn how to lie? No one does, and yet they do naturally. No one teaches us to lie, and yet we, all of us, are tempted in various ways to shade the truth, and we need to be reminded not to give in, not to take the, the path of the lying and the deceitful tongue. Oh, friends, these verses teach us about the divine retribution against the lying tongue. But when we are on the receiving side and we are on the, on the target of the receiving side, the point of this psalm is to tell us and remind us we do not need to engage in personal vengeance. We do not need to engage in personal self-righteousness and self-defense and self-justice. What we need to do is call out to the Lord and ask Him to, to release us, to, to save us, to protect us from the deceitful tongue. And He does so by first and foremost reminding us and teaching us and enabling us to release the vengeance to the Lord. I wonder if there are some of us this morning who need to hear this answer from the Lord in a fresh way. Releasing to the Lord is the first part of the answer the Lord gives to the psalmist. But that is only the first part of the answer. The other part of the answer the Lord gives, and the final point of this psalm, is the third point of the message. Resolve before the Lord. Resolve before the Lord. If the first part of the answer is to release to the Lord, the second is resolve before the Lord. And as we look at how this psalm ends, I think the answer the Lord gave the psalmist is the heart posture of examining where this man was and the need to develop homesickness 
for a, a place of lasting peace even though his circumstances don't change. And this is his resolve before the Lord. He is realizing that he is longing for a new place. Look at verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, these two places, if we look at a map, at the geography of the, of the Middle East, we realize that these two places are not close to each other. Actually, on the map, they are opposites of each other. Meshek is in what would be today the modern-day Turkey, way, way north of Israel, actually close to the Black Sea. While Kedar is on the south of Israel in the Arab Peninsula, a little closer to Israel, but in the south. So clearly the person that speaks here uh, cannot be living in, the sa- in both places at the same time. It's possible that the psalmist is speaking about dwelling in these opposite places in a, in a metaphorical way. This is a poetic way of describing the Gentile world that is far from Israel, away from the Lord. That would be the point of, of dwelling in Meshech. And, and, and dwelling in, among the tents of Kedar, in the Bible, the Kedarites, they were the descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael was never part of God's promise given to Abraham through Isaac. Remember the book of Galatians that we have finished a few weeks ago? That God had promised his people, and that the promise of God to Abraham would come through Isaac, which would be the, the child of promise, which pointed to Jesus Christ. Here the Keterites were the descendants of, of Ishmael, who was not the son of promise. It's as if the psalmist is saying, Woe to me, for I am living far away from the Lord's place, And I am living among the people who will not inherit God's promises. It's a way of saying, woe to me, for too long I've tried to make my home in the wrong place among the wrong people. This is a self-reflection that every Christian must come to realize as we are living in a society that is increasingly hostile to God and to His peace. No matter matter how well things are going for us, uh, to be in a materialistic society morally and spiritually, this is not our home. And the sooner we realize this, uh, the better it is for our souls, the better it will be for our spiritual journey. So Psalm, so verse 6 starts with not only the woe to me, but so, uh, as in verse 5, but verse 6 says, too long, too long I've had my dwelling. This is a cry of the longing for a better homeland. This is the cry of the one who discovers afresh that he is actually 
displaced, placed in the wrong place among the wrong people. This is the one who discovers afresh a new experience of homesickness that is different from the place he's in. And some of you may feel the weightiness of verse 6. Too long had I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Some of you experience the weightiness of this verse as you live with family members. Some of you feel the weightiness of verse 6 as you live in relationships with ongoing strife, hurt, conflict. The application of this verse is not get out, move out. Because you can live, you can try to move out and go out and take the conflict and the strife with you. Because often that is lodged in our own hearts. Notice the resolution that the psalmist makes and comes to in verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And there's two parts in this resolution. In the midst of conflict and strife, it always takes two people to fight. The resolution this person makes is that even though he's surrounded by people who are for war, in the midst of that context, it is amazing to hear the resolution, I am for peace. This is a big temptation we face when we are surrounded by people who are set on conflict, that it rubs off on us as well. The conflict of others against us triggers us as well. We get drawn into that conflict and contribute to it in return, adding to the strife and even causing it in return. We can even hate those who hate peace. And in the process of hating those who hate peace, we cause strife by joining them in a similar insti instinct for strife. But this man refuses that temptation. He says, I am for peace. Even when others are for conflict and strife, I am for peace. Oh, friends, the homesickness that this man develops is not merely to escape the present, but to seek to be for peace in the present while continuing to dwell among people who are for war. This is not the escapism attitude that simply wants to get out and just go to heaven and be done with this world. Rather, it's a positive desire to be for peace even in the midst of those who are for conflict and strife. And friends, this is a hard one. This is a hard posture of this particular psalm. Because it takes the power of the gospel to continue to work out in our own hearts, to keep our own heart posture in this attitude of saying, I am for peace, even when I speak and others are for war. This, the, 
is a truth that this psalm brings us to. That in order for anyone to come to experience this homesickness after lasting peace, even while we are not teleported automatically out of the conflict, while we continue to stay in it and live among relationships that are bent towards conflict, to be able to, stay, to say with a clear conscience, with a heart that continues to be focused on, I am for peace. How can this man in this distress say this? And I think this is part of the answer that God gives to the man in the psalm. Even though the circumstances don't change. And this is the hard reality of the psalm. This man calls out to the Lord in his distress. His circumstances don't seem to change. And yet he says at the end of this psalm, I am for peace. This is the ambiguous answer the Lord gives this man. How can anyone say it? How can anyone live in this way? Reality is that this psalm points us to the one who truly was for peace. When others have lied against him, when others have spoken deceitful words against him, and that person is Jesus Christ. Without retaliating, without trying to bring justice on his own and, and stopping the evildoers from acting against him, after he was arrested, Jesus was judged quickly, and the judgments brought against him were all lies and deceits. In his case, the jury who presided over his judgment ended up siding with the lies and with the deceit. And thus Jesus was sentenced to death on the false accusations brought against him. And yet he did not retaliate, but released the lying tongues to God, warning them that God's judgment against those who would crucify him would be severe. And yet even so, he prayed for those who crucified him. But before he entered Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jesus said the following about the city that he entered. As he journeyed to the city of Jerusalem, centuries later after these psalms of ascent were written and, and sung, when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, as he approached the city, we read in Luke 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now... They are hidden from your eyes. Here's Jesus Christ on a journey towards Jerusalem for one of the festivals. Just like the Jewish pilgrims, as they went through in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, year after year, would go for the festivals. Jesus 
went on the spiritual journey, hoping, hoping for peace as he looked and journeyed towards Jerusalem. And he uses and utters these amazing words. Would you, even you, have known on this day the things that make for peace? Reality is that even the city of peace, Jerusalem, needed to experience a peace that they no longer had. And the one and only one who could bring it to them in the midst of the strife, in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the lies and the seed, he is the one who actually experienced the lies and the seed against him. So that through his unjust accusations and judgments, he would actually bring the true change that brings us peace and causes in our hearts a new experience of homesickness. Not in the peace that the physical city of Jerusalem can offer, but in the peace that even the physical city of Jerusalem needed to experience, and yet their eyes were closed to see. Friends, we need Jesus, the one who can truly bring us the peace. The peace that comes through his death in the place of sinners who would turn to God, turning away from their rebellion, turning away from their ignorance, and turning towards Jesus Christ in faith, trusting that his death on behalf of sinners like you and me is the means, the only means, that brings us peace with God and peace with one another. Oh, friends, this is a true homesickness that we are called to cultivate and experience the true homesickness is to recognize that for too far, we too have been comfortable in this world. Far too long, we too have lived far away from the presence of the Lord. Far away from the people who have received the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, like the psalmist in verse 6 we too may need to come and say, far too long I have lived in the wrong place with the wrong people, spiritually speaking. To be a woman and, and man of peace is to experience the peace that Christ gives. Even when God does not take us out of the relationships of conflict, even while we continue to experience the rest of verse 7, when I speak, they are for war. The circumstances outside us may not change, but to experience what this man in the psalm says, I am for peace. I love the words that Jesus told his disciples before going to the cross. Peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Our only hope for being for peace in a world surrounded by war and conflict and strife is to cling to Jesus and to cultivate the homesickness for the lasting peace 
that comes to us through Jesus alone. I wonder in what ways you need to cling to Jesus in a fresh way so that you deepen your homesickness for lasting peace that he gives. I am for peace. Can you say this too? Can this be said of you in your family, among your friends, in the workplace? I am for peace. May this homesickness for the peace that Jesus Christ alone is able to give us, may this homesickness be ours. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are amazed by the wisdom of your word to reveal to us, to our hearts, the reality of the hurt and the distress that we oftentimes find ourselves in. But you do so not only in such a realistic way, but you do so in a way that shifts the attention of our hearts towards a peace that we cannot accomplish and experience on our own. But that we need you to bring that to us. And Father, we pray that in Jesus Christ, that you would deepen that peace in our hearts. So when the trials and tribulations, when hurts, when deceits and difficulties surround us and assail our hearts and souls, that we may be drawn to you and challenged by you and equipped by your spirit to long long for that which you alone can give us in Jesus Christ. Father, as we prepare our hearts, even in the remaining of the service, to partake of the Lord's Supper, enable us to long for the peace that Jesus came to bring us. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen.